that's a common theme anyway in a lot of the digital projects was that you were kind of breaking new ground and having to make new rules and convince people to change the way that they've been doing things historically. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Wonderful People podcast with uh, the international man of mystery Phil Jones, <laughs> aka the Podgemeister, aka Agency Extraordinaire, aka Man United fan, and there's so many other things I could say. I'm going to stop oh, there. Thank you. That's but life as a Man United fan is quite good at the moment. Uh, life is pretty good, but as an Arsenal fan, you must be lapping it up, top of the league, young youngest Loving team it. as well. Today, Dan supports Southampton. Oh dear! Oh, and I don't think we we're going to spend a lot of time talking about football today. But let's see, let's see how we go. You might be brave. Football's off the off the topic. <laughs> off the topic today. Well, let's just hope that Southampton uh, are still a Premier League team next season. Yeah, it's it's looking highly doubtful. To be honest, it's looking highly doubtful. It's just our worst worst season in a, in a long time. A long time. And just what well, let's let's move on from Southampton, and uh, we'll actually introduce Richard in a minute. But tell us about Italian football. Have you adopted it? What are your thoughts on it? When I first moved out to Italy, I thought, oh, this is a great opportunity. Uh, I'm going to pick myself an Italian team and go to the football because um, for the last few years that I was living in London, it was um, just too expensive. It wasn't possible to to go to a lot of matches or anything. And I thought when I moved out here, I'd pick an Italian team. But we actually, I picked a part of Italy, which is kind of absolutely hours away from any decent Italian teams. So uh, I think in 20 years, I, my first Italian match I went to about a year ago, uh, an Inter, Inter Milan match. Amazing to go to the San Siro. But um, right. yeah, I, I still follow, blindly follow Southampton. And uh, that's my team, oh. just independent of, of, of where I am in the world. Oh, good bad. Phil, do you want to introduce our guest? Because um, you two have got history, so to speak. We have got history. Um, but as you get older, you, your brain goes a little bit. So I forget who he is. I just recognised his face when I saw him. <laughs> when I saw him pop on the screen, I thought, I'm sure I know that boy. But, <laughs> I've seen him when before. when I heard him, I'm sure it was like, hello, I've got fired on again. I'm glad that you still refer to me as a boy. That's that's I take that as a compliment. Richard, you will <laughs> always be a boy in my mind. But I think, if I remember rightly, were we your first job out of university? You gave me my first job. Yeah. My first employer. Uh -huh. So, uh, yeah. And ever, ever grateful for that opportunity. Oh, he's pulling his face there. I can see that. So that our viewers can't see that, but I, I did. Well, it was a kind of, it was kind of a grimace as well as a smile and... Like look of sadness as well, but mostly gratefulness. I think he misses me. Still not being paid, Phil, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no, Richard actually was, we had a fantastic digital agency that I'll let Richard talk about later. But at the time, we were setting our own story, really, because there were lots of firsts that we were coming up with and we were picking up some really interesting and great clients. And we tried to bring in young talent around us and we had uh, two of the people we've interviewed in in previous episodes were Trevor Chambers and Patrick Beckley and it was bringing in a young team around some of the more senior 
people, and Richard was one of those. I think you were at the same time as Steve Swan, and there was a few like younger people, like right. really talented, but then just needed that break and a bit of nurturing. And, and I think working with the team around them, particularly Trevor and Patrick, and a, and a, a mad guy we had out selling what we did was it will be completely barking mad, but it was fantastic. So we had wonderful atmosphere, digital in those early days when it was a little bit different to how it is now. And hopefully during the course of this interview, we'll we'll get some of those memories from the man himself, Richard. I tried to get rid of all of those memories. Been going through counselling <laughs> trying to get rid of that. So yeah, it'll be a painful experience bringing it all back up again. Oh, that's okay. We'll be, we'll be a shoulder to cry on. Don't worry, Richard. But the first question we always ask our guests, and uh, we're firing it straight at you. If you could be stuck in a lift with someone, who would it be and why? I think instinctively, I would say a lift technician, <laughs> someone that could fix the lift, probably. <laughs> but uh, perhaps that's not going in the spirit of the of the question. Um, <laughs> they always say as well, don't meet up with your heroes. So uh, if, right. I, if I was to meet up with people that hit any heroes, they would probably be Kipchoge, which is the 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 fastest marathon runner, who a couple of years ago broke two. And to me, that would be a, a tremendous opportunity to, to to have a chat and rack his brain on how to improve my running and, uh, and what have you. Alex Ferguson, I think, is someone who I admire greatly as well, which I think uh, could really be interesting to understand about managing a team, not just a sports team, but I think a lot of you know those skills you can apply in your work as well. So I think those two people would be fascinating to have in uh, in a lift. Probably thinking logically about it, it'd be good to get some potential clients in the lift and have uh, be able to do the elevator pitch. You know, be blocked into a, an elevator a couple of hours with some really juicy <laughs> clients. It wouldn't wouldn't be a bad opportunity. So none of this thirty second pitch. This is like the two hour elevator pitch, right? They would get my full on two hours brain brainwashing. Right, they'd get the, they'd get the full story. Well, just so Richard, look, I want to come. I want to hear more about these early days of digital. Obviously, you know, we're 2023. Digital is, you know, is so many things to so many people nowadays. But you started your career, sort of, you know, as Phil alluded to earlier, kind of at the forefront of that kind of digital innovation and sort of working on many brands' first digital presence. So, what was that like, and what was the what were you excited by at the time? You're, you're right. I think today we kind of it's very easy to take the, it for granted. And I think, you know, very quickly, certain technologies, you know, you, within a few years, we we adopt them, we assimilate them, and we take them for granted. So uh, it's been quite interesting. I've sort of been thinking back recently. I came over to one of Phil's events at Christmas. That was an opportunity to sort of really think back to that time. And uh, you kind of forget how it felt. And, and it really was a time where it was like an earthquake happening, I think, in the design industry. I don't think I felt I really recognized it myself because I was new. I was a student just sort of coming out of college. So for me, I saw massive opportunities. I was really excited. But I think there was equally a lot of people that had been working in the industry that were starting to feel it shaking. So, but it, so it was an, a fascinating time. There was a lot of creative tension. My background as well, I went, when I went to design college, uh, my first year was very traditional. I worked with, you know, these typographers that were schooled in the Bauhaus school of design. You know, they didn't 
they, they made us push around uh, these little squares on a grid for hours. You know, I think we spent three months just pushing a square around the grid. Then we got to push two squares around. Eventually, you'd progress to 16. Wow. It was almost like learning some kind of martial arts or something, you know, polish on, polish off. And you know, after three, maybe after three months, they'd let you actually use some words. You know, so this, I had this like really formal design training for at least a year. And then the amazing thing was that uh, the school brought in these postmodern designers. So pretty much everything we learned in that first year completely got torn up. David Carson, Barry Deck, you know, these designers that were using photocopy machines and the Mac, and they were totally destroying everything that had been gone before. Right. I think digital at that time wasn't meaning websites or, or interaction. At that time, digital was the Mac, and it was totally democratizing and revolutionizing design. Uh, you know, I remember going to uh, conferences where the topic was, you know, when you start an idea, you know, should you use a computer or a pencil? And everyone was like, oh, you mustn't use the computer. You need to use a notepad and a pencil. And I was blown away by this resistance, let's say, even to, to digital. And at that time, I was kind of, what was really getting me interested was uh, also interactive design, uh, interaction and uh, the, the World Wide Web. It was talking about hypertext, the fact you could click on a word and move to another page. These things, we take them for granted now, but they were they were mind-blowing. And I remember one of the teachers took us into the library and we used, we had some computers and we were doing chat. The first time we ever used just a, like a SMS messaging or chatting or something online. And, you know, people took me up. Some people talked about who they identified themselves. Other people used the opportunity to say things that they wouldn't have normally said, let's say, to the, to the teacher. And it opened up all of these ideas about medium can change completely the way that we communicate. And I, the thing that got me interested was the potential of change. I think just uh, everything uh, was going to change in a big way. I could see it changing. I never thought I was going to get a job in digital, but there were no digital you know, web design jobs or anything. You know, There were graphic design jobs typesetting, logo designers, editorial designers, brand. You, you couldn't find a digital job you know, when I was at university, but I was curious. I was, had a passion about it, but I never for one minute thought I would, uh, I would get a job doing it. And then luckily I found this opportunity with, with Phil and I was blown away that I could actually earn money and do this and experiment with this, this new thing. You know, we had no idea what we were doing. We were just inventing and making things up pretty much as we were going along, I think. Those were fun days, actually. But I, I remember it very fondly. Uh, I don't think I appreciated uh, just how amazing and how rapid we grew as well the, the, and how things changed. The, the, the things that really stand into my mind are the, are the people that we worked with, I think. Like you said, there was some, you know, a great mix of some established figures that had a lot, you know, a lot of good experience in the design business, um, but equally in interaction design, you know, we were musicians and DJs and actors, uh, you know, and so there was this incredible vibe, you know, there was not a pretense or, you know, I think in 
traditional design, there was, you know, hierarchies that have been set in place for many, many, many years. My uh, idea of when I would have left university, gone to a design studio, would have been to go to sort of like a, a boutique studio. I had a vision of, you know, like you've got your <laughs> black polo neck kind of, or, you know, turtleneck and, uh, you know, it all being very sophisticated and, and, and pretentious. And real time was every the opposite of that. It was, you know, open, friendly. There, there was no, um, you know, if there was a challenge, everyone put their heads to solving that challenge. You know, everyone could contribute, you know, some, everyone brought a skill to the table. So there was no kind of, I had friends that worked in other studios that, you know, the, the, the great jobs, they would never be shared out amongst the rest of the team. Everyone would be protective of their ideas. You know, it was almost like at school, at the exam, where you're covering the, the your answers because no one wanted to share anything. Whereas in real time, it was about everyone working together and uh, amazing. You know, so I got to work with so many amazing people. I have a great fond memories in that, uh, that working with some heroes like Patrick, you know, I had such great admiration for these people that had produced some really groundbreaking work. So to get to work with them was amazing to work with. Trevor was absolutely the best boss that I could ever imagine working for. Amazing, <laughs> amazing times. You talked about Ian Wilby. You, you triggered a memory that I had of uh, working with the sales guy, Ian. And actually, it was probably one of the only moments of tension that, were ever, that I ever felt in that environment because we were working with a client. We were launching an e-commerce and everyone in the business had to go through and proofread the, the pages of the website. And so we were all taking different pages. He took a page and I remember him coming up to me and being furious, absolutely furious with me and thinking that we had taken the mickey out of him because we were launching an e-commerce and the products, it was an underwear section for a fashion company and uh, the products had names. And in a fashion company, often they name, they give names to products, just makes it easier to, to communicate internally. And it just so happened that the boxer shorts and the vest were, one was called Ian no. and one was called Wilby. And of course, <laughs> so he checks the page and he finds Ian Wilby underwear, you know, the boxer shoe, hot and vest. And I remember him bursting into the office thinking that I had, you know, humiliated him in front of the, the whole company. And it, it, was a, it was a difficult task to explain to him that it was a genuine, you know, uh, just coincidence. Brilliant. <laughs> Ian was... Uh... In, in this new business role, selling multimedia and having to explain to clients what it actually was. Well, he was selling the original show in London, Multimedia 96, and it was the first ever interactive event in London. And his job was to sell stands to people to go talk about multimedia. And he came, he came to sell me a stand at this show. And we went and had two pints at the pub opposite where we were in those days we were in Eversholt Street two pints and at the end of it I'd sold him the fact that we would do their website for this multimedia 96 and it was like it literally got across the road and he said how did that just happen he said I was, <laughs> I was supposed to be here selling you a stand and you just sold me the website for the event and that that became one of the first ever websites we did back in 96, which was for the show. Brilliant. Trevor, who we've mentioned a couple of times, that we had a lot of newscasters coming there. We had CNN and global channels coming to each stand asking about multimedia. 
And without Trevor knowing, I'd set him up to do a live interview on international news at six o'clock that same evening. And all I told Trevor is that he had a meeting, had to go and say a few words to this person that had been on the stand. I didn't tell him it was like going to be a purple thing. And Trevor, if he'd have known, he'd have said no, because he'd have been quite nervous. The fact he didn't know, he just was this typical brilliant self, you know, but oh, they, were, they were fun days. Thanks for that little memory, Richard. Now, you made a career decision in your early years that shaped the rest of your life. Tell us about that and what happened next. One of the clients that we got through at real time was uh, Diesel. And I think they, you know, uh, in Italy, there were no web agencies at that time. They were looking for a, a design web agency and they saw the real time site. I think they wrote an email and got the response yes. back within about a minute or two. And uh, I think that convinced them, you know, that reactivity and the the excellence of the typography and the, uh, on the, on the, that was shown on the website, that convinced them to, to engage with us. I remember even then Phil sending me out uh, to have dinner with them. You know, I <laughs> thought, you know, I'm just fresh out of college and he's not sending, you know, the, the big wig team or anything out to, to wine and dine the client, but he was prepared to, to, to let me go out and, and basically uh, yeah, chat for the whole evening about the potential of digital to, to the client. And, and we got them and, uh, and we worked for a couple of years on projects for them, lots and lots of projects. And eventually they wanted to kind of set up this internal agency looking for opportunities, selling how, you know, digital could be applied within the rest of the company. And so, yeah, I, I just jumped at this opportunity to, to move, kind of be like a satellite, let's say, of real time inside diesel for a while. And yeah, it was a massive life-changing event, you know, not just changing jobs, changing, going from agency uh, side to being client side and, and all of the changes that come with that. And yeah, the whole language thing as well. You know, when I moved, I didn't know a word of Italian. I didn't know yes or no in Italian. So it took a lot of courage, I think, to make that jump. But to be honest, one of the things that made the, made me convinced to do it was that uh, I sat next to this French programmer, the, D, the DJ Frank, and we used to, you know, rib him something chronic about his accent. He had to get used to being, having the Mickey taken out of you in the, in the <laughs> office, but especially by Phil. Yeah. So we used to make fun of poor old Frank and his French accent. And I thought, how can I make fun of him and his French accent and then not have the courage to, to go to Italy and do the same thing as he's done? So he really inspired me. You know, if he could move country, learn a new language, do something else, then, you know, that inspired me to, to take that jump. Uh, you know, otherwise, because I'd actually, through the job, I'd met my future wife. So the reason what, you know, I, I obviously wanted to go to Italy was to be with her. But at the time, we were looking for her to have a job in in london so anyway yeah kind of like a sliding doors moment to move and i and i've never never looked back never never come back i i sort of put my roots down in, in north italy kind of you're merging two worlds now right you're merging interactive design digital into the world of fashion and into the world of big brand so i mean i was and obviously as you say the rest is history but give us a little bit of insight into you know, how did you set up and manage interactive teams? And for a brand like Diesel, how did digital change the kind of evolution of their business? Well, 
I think the really lucky thing was that it was diesel and they had uh, a culture and a team of people that enabled digital to kind of blossom. You know, they, their motto was only the brave. The owner of the company had taken jeans, which were uh, at the time, you know, maybe, uh, you know, you'd buy a new pair of jeans, whereas he, he'd, he was putting holes in them and convincing people to, to spend twice as much money on what should essentially be looked at as like a, a you know a broken product. So I think there was a mentality that was open to uh, disruption and uh, challenging the norm. And he, like Phil did with uh, Real Time, he surrounded himself with young people. He uh, listened to them. You know, his intuition was to listen to the young people, and we made what we wanted for ourselves you know we were playing playstation you know that was you know the new thing at the time you know when playstation came out that was a an incredible revelation to have an arcade game an arcade machine in your own home you know so these were things that we were spending our free time on and i think you know inside the company the the, the creatives you know we realized well why aren't we doing something in here you know we should be dressing these characters and so it was kind of natural, I think, to reach out to the computer game kind of com uh, companies. You know, they also were reaching out to us. They wanted to make their games more realistic. You know, to have a brand in their game made it appear, appear more realistic. And so that's a, that's how, for example, we we came to be doing a lot of product placement in computer games. Which you know that was yeah, 1996, 97. I think we did at least 20 games or something over the next 10 years, and yet. You know, if I look at a couple of years ago, Gucci is, you know, launching stuff in Fortnite and it's kind of heralded as, you know, breakthrough digital fashion in, in you know, uh, product placement. And, uh, and yet, you know, we were there doing it you know, 20 years wow. ago. So there, I think it's, it's a, it was a lot to do with the culture. Lots of young people, you know, we were experimenting with digital and the company gave us the, the freedom and the trust and, you know, one project just led to another. It was just every few months there was a new innovation. There would be Flash or, shop, you know, animation or QuickTime and YouTube and social media. It was just one evolution, one thing after another. And we were kind of charged with, right, you need to keep ahead of this curve and and take the brand into that environment. For me, it was amazing to be able to express the brand in new dimensions beforehand the brand would have been expressed through print you know the all fashion brands did a fashion campaign you would make six images or 10 images a season you know you would spend months coming up with the ideas you know weeks crafting them weeks post producing them you know and uh, and then all of a sudden you know you could take the brand and communicate its personality you know in a different media i remember the first e-commerce that we did, you know, there was there was no platforms for e-commerce. We had to build, you know, people like Peter Peterson, Mark, you know, they were hand programming e-commerce. You know, we didn't even know what 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 is e-commerce, and you know, the orders would come in, and and I'm answering the emails to the, you know, I designed the front end, I designed the interface for the website, but I was I was answering the customer care and the orders, you know, getting back to people. All right, we're going to send that out, you know. You know, what I love about this is there's so many, so many kind of firsts and innovation and it feels like it was a constant season of kind of innovation. 
at that time, you just looked around and were like looking for opportunities. Can we have fun with that? You know, things like the fashion show. I remember seeing some hologram technology that people were developing and we were doing a lot of storytelling. The, the, the collections were full of stories to tell them. They were so amazing. They were so rich of ideas. Uh, and for me, the my objective at the time was how do we tell that story behind the collection? You know, all of this incredible research and the, all of the ideas, this incredible ideas behind the collection. How do we bring that to life? And so we were using animation. We saw this holographic technology and I was like, what happens if we put that together, you know, and can we do something? So really lucky. We managed to have, we had this opportunity also of this uh, trade fair in Italy called PT and they wanted to relaunch themselves. They had a bit of budget to, to put behind a fashion show. So we combined budgets and we brought this technology to the catwalk and we were the first fashion brand ever to do a holographic fashion show. I had never done anything on fashion shows before. I had no idea of what a fashion show involved, you know, and so I found myself in the middle of this production and it was probably good that I didn't have any experience as well because then you can bring sort of some fresh eyes to it and you also don't limit yourself because you don't know what the pitfalls are, the things that other people would say, oh no, we can't do that because, you know, that's that's too risky. In fact, with this holographic fashion show, it meant that the models had to exit onto the catwalk at exactly the right moment because my you know, vision for this fashion show was that the models should interact with the holograms. And uh, it meant that the models had to all come out at exactly the right time. I'm explaining this to the, the production team, the stylist, the, the DJ, everyone involved. And they're like, oh, no, you don't, we don't do it like that. You know, uh, we have a DJ. And so, of course, the models, when they come out, you know, some of them walk a little bit quicker, some of them walk a little bit slower. So we have a DJ, which can regulate and extend or shorten the length of the tracks accordingly. You know, that's how we do it. And I was like, well, if we want these models to be synced perfectly with the holograms, you know, we need a track. We don't need a DJ. We need someone to just press play and stop on the track. And uh, it took a lot of, con you know, had to convince a lot of people to throw away the previous way of doing things. So I think that's that's a common theme anyway in, in a lot of the digital projects was that you were kind of breaking new ground and having to make new rules and convince people to change the way that they've been doing things historically. That, um, that was definitely a, a really great example of doing first. Have you got a favorite campaign that you can put your finger on over this period? Oh, I have got so many campaigns that I uh, am proud to have worked on with, with the great teams. I work with so many amazing creative people around the world. I think probably if I had to talk to you about one campaign is actually not a diesel campaign. It was one which uh, I got to work on the opportunity to work on for a company called Jox, which is kind of the Italian version of Clark's, let's say. So quite um, safe and, you know, uh, common typical high, uh, high street brand, you know, not certainly not. Uh, disruptive like uh, Diesel had been and they had uh, a new product that they wanted to launch on the market. It was a waterproof product. Uh, basically their shoes, I don't know if you've ever seen them, their shoes come with holes in the bottom, they breathe so that they are more, more comfortable because they, they breathe. 
but they had gone through a, some quality control problems where the water was getting into the shoe and stuff. So they were kind of relaunching themselves back onto the market with this new product of uh, this winter shoe, a waterproof winter shoe. And um, so with the creative agency, we came up with this idea of putting them to the most epic test. And so the idea was, let's take them to the rainiest place in the world. And, you know, if we can demonstrate them there, then they can work anywhere. And uh, so the agency researched where this place was. Manchester. It wasn't Manchester, funnily enough. In fact, it, the UK has something like 60 centimeters of rain a year. Okay. Just to give it some context, the rainiest place in the planet uh, has 12 meters of rain. Uh, so yeah, like 20 times the rain uh, as, as England. The, the the first the second place was something like Barbados or some tropical glorious place. I was like, yeah, we're gonna go. We want to go there. But it was the number one place was this place called Cherapunji in the the or the top of this mountain in in between India and kind of Tibet uh, and in the, this rainforest. And um, so yeah, the 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 project was let's take the shoes and do a demonstrate. We made a documentary, so. One, it was, I'm really proud of this campaign because we, um, we convinced the company to, to embrace this idea and it wasn't, you know, taken for granted. That would have been an easy idea to get sold in, in diesel. Whereas in jerks, they were like, oh, well, you're taking our shoes to the rainforest. Our shoes aren't meant to be worn in a rainforest, you know? So there were lots of resistance about doing this campaign initially. Uh, and then it was just the, you know, there were no script, you know, we were making a documentary and, uh, you know, we left for Cherapunji. There was, you know, how do you get a hundred pairs of shoes up the side of a mountain? And, um, I think what I also had taken for granted was, you know, this is the rainiest place on earth. You know, we got there, the BBC had actually been there the week before to make a documentary finally enough about this place and it hadn't rained. And it was in sort of in that moment that it sort of like the terror <laughs> this, this fell upon me. I was like, what am I doing? You know, we've spent like an absolute epic budget on this project and it was completely in the hands of, of the gods, you know, if it was would rain a lot. And thankfully, you know, I think three out of the four filming days, it rained uh, and a lot, uh, you know, on the last day it didn't rain and that kind of like struck home the... I think the courage that we all, you know, as a company that we had, you know, to take on a challenge, we brought it back and we transformed it into a, an interactive documentary. You could actually visit. Our idea was that we will take you there. So we were using interactive video. You could drop down into Cherapunji and you could navigate almost like a live street view of Google kind of thing, fly through the streets. And we'd actually taken four. Uh, product testers we recruited on our Facebook page four people to come and demonstrate the products and we took a journalistic photographer from London uh, we took a tour guide from Venice uh, I think a ski instructor from Sweden uh, from Switzerland you know people that had a need for waterproof shoes that had an experience of technical uh, equipment and we took them there to to visit these you know this place and we brought back this documentary and we actually won the Can Lion. We won. We beat Nike to the best fashion website campaign that year. And so 
you know, that was pr- probably for me the, the, the best campaign that I've ever got to, to work on. Are you enjoying our podcast? Remember to subscribe, share and leave us a review. Richard, it's brilliant to hear that kind of so much of those early years of technology and innovation and so many different applications. Bringing it back to where we find ourselves today and the whole chat GPT, AI, everything that's, you know, if you're on LinkedIn, every other post is about that at the moment. What are your thoughts on that, you know, in terms of emerging trends, you know, in the fashion industry and why do you know? And I suppose, where do you see the big opportunities, you know, for the fashion industry in the next kind of couple of years? I feel that it's a moment which is, again, like the Mac, like the internet, it's another one of those moments where, it's uh, creating a bit of an earthquake. It's going to, I think, inevitably have massive consequences, perhaps more than, you know, there's other buzzwords, metaverse, NFT, all of these kind of things. Whereas I think AI is something that really is going to have and already is having a big impact on the design industry, creative industry, and on the fashion industry. I think I first, you know, what opened my eyes was about eight years ago was at a Salesforce conference. It was enormous, incredible conference. They had lots of startups presenting technology that could integrate with their platform, integrate with Facebook and stuff. And I saw this one startup and I thought, whoa, that, that was a moment which I hadn't had in digital for a long time since maybe, you know, Facebook coming along. I hadn't seen anything which really made me go, oh. This is going to change things. And they showed how they were building this software which could write. Okay, so it's a little bit like a precursor to chat GPT. And what they were doing were, were kind of fusing a couple of things together, making something really powerful. They were showing how you could do advertising in Facebook, but instead of being a copywriter and a designer doing you know one version or even doing three or four four versions, which I was used to kind of sending out a couple of different posts, testing the water, which ones are resonating more with the audience or whatever. They were producing a thousand, a thousand iterations of banners. You know, they would put in, you know, this is the message. We want to sell flowers at this price. You know, these were the kind of the value proposition was put into the system, but it would spit out thousands of, of phrases which then would be, you know, tested in Facebook. And they were also mapping the semantics of the word. So they would understand, you know, is it that we need to create a sense of urgency? Are we creating a sense of, you know, uh, pride or love or whatever it was? They could understand semantically the messages. And they were gauging the reaction of different audiences and fine-tuning the message. And I felt, wow, you know, design where you know we were handcrafting there would have been a team of people years ago to handcraft one image that would go to everyone and all of a sudden we have to turn things on the head and we need to create thousands of pieces of content content so that you can speak one-to-one so that was my kind of first moment of what this is going to change things. so I, I came back i was working in jelks at the time and i thought we do need to get prepared for this and so I was kind of working on ha- structuring information inside the company. How can I capture information in, you know, from all of the processes along the design process and the production process and the creative process, bring it all together in one place in a structured way so that we could take advantage of 
this technology when once it started to kind of mature. I then moved on to Benetton where I was doing a similar kind of thing and we started to adopt the AI. So we were using it to do image recognition and tag products so we could create descriptions. As a designer, a producer, my task was to create content for 15,000 items of clothing every season. And, you know, if you need to start adopt you can't just rely on a team of copywriters to do that you need to adopt you know industrial processes and ai is hugely powerful at helping create you know enormous amounts of of content and so that's what we'll be using it for uh, and i think that it's going to mature very 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 rapidly i'm sure there's lots of brands already doing it and it's amazing how accessible this technology is you know everyone can use it my son is using it without even realizing it he he also is interested in graphic design and, you know, he's making posts about Southampton. He has his own kind of like blog and Instagram page about it. And, you know, he shows me the images that he's making and it's incredible. You know, he downloads images, gathers content, and then he uses this website where he uploads maybe a low quality, slightly out of focus photograph of a footballer. And the AI is capable of, you know, enhancing it you know, it's not just like Photoshop kind of enhancement, but it's like insane. It adds detail to the images, you know, and he's using AI without even realizing. Right. So uh, I think in fashion terms as well, where I see it being uh, going to revolutionize things like now is in visual merchandising. So in the physical stores, the visual merchandiser had a very important role. In a physical store, how you present the products, you know, the, the order, the color combinations, the way you prioritize the products is a hugely important role. And it can determine, you know, the success of the store. You could sell two items in an hour or five items in an hour just to do with how those products have actually been presented. And I think what digital lost uh, in e-commerce was the role of the digital, of the visual merchandise. You know, you, we're so used to e-commerce experiences. They're not beautiful. They're not, they're not crafted in the same way that a physical store experience is, you know, crafted down to the last millimeter on e-commerce. You know, you can change the order of the products yourself. It's kind of a bit chaotic and that elegance, that way of communicating the brand has been missing. Whereas artificial intelligence is able to present the product, order the product in such a way that it can recreate that harmonious, fashionable sense of presentation and do it in a way which is one-to-one, that AI can present you the product, but instead of it being casual, I've got, uh, i give you a better example. I think like things like Salesforce, the algorithms that have been used up to date, up to date, they're, they're not intelligent. They bet they're based on buying behaviors, you know, someone comes in, they bought this jacket, they also bought that pair of shoes, just because that consumer bought that combination of products doesn't mean that they actually go very well together when you show them to someone else. So the AI is able to uh, better merchandise and show you groups of products, which will just look absolutely amazing when they're presented together. So I think the AI will be very very powerful at recommending to you how to complete your look you know if you're buying a product and you like it but there's something not quite right about it immediately 
you can press a button and show me a product which is similar, you know, but maybe doesn't have that kind of detail. So that's the power of um, helping people and assisting people when they're buying fashion is going to be massively improved through the use of, of AI. As social influencers have seen a huge changes to your industry, how have you managed that change and what are your thoughts on where, where it's going? Today's social media working with influencers is kind of established as a, a given now. You know, you, you know if, you're a, if you're a brand, you, you must be working with your community. You must involve your influencers in some way. They are more powerful than the media. You know, many of them have got a reach that is bigger than traditional media. So if you want to reach people, your best bet is to go through an influencer. And of course, influencers and the content that they make is much more uh, influential, obviously, than, uh, than, than advertising probably ever could be. So I think they've consolidated themselves as you know a must-have channel of communication. Many of them have become brands in their own right. So I think some fashion brands, perhaps, ought to be looking at influencers as competitors. There's lots of influencers that, you know, they've got a following which they can now monetize with merchandising and branding, you know, products. So many of them have their own fashion lines. I think they are themselves the new fashion brands. In Diesel, we always worked before there was this concept of so at least social media influencers. It was kind of normal for us. We had marketing managers in every country it was everything was done to excess you know i think probably today they probably have a smaller marketing team and have consolidated it but you know at the time you know we had marketing managers in every single country you know that were on the ground building relationships working with musicians working with stylists working with nightclub owners and um you know so we always worked with people that what influencing uh, the, the the youth culture, let's say. So it was kind of natural for us when you know, influencers arrived on the scene on social media, it was natural for us to kind of transition into that world, I guess. Dan's very modest, but I think you're a fashion influencer at Maidstone, aren't you, Dan? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much the uh, biggest fashion influencer in my office right now of, of one. Really? Yeah. It's a shame listeners can't actually see you and how you're dressed at the moment, but I know. classy, mate. Yeah, classy, you know. Everything in Maystone's classy. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, like, we've spoken a lot about, obviously, like, you know, getting into tech and, you know, and, and design and innovation, and that's quite an absorbed world, right? So what do you do to relax? I mean, especially in a country like Italy and you... You've probably, yeah, you've formed a new life over the last few years, as you've said. So, what do you do? Hobbies, relaxation. What what kind of gets your mind off all of this world? I'm really lucky to to live in this part of the world completely. I mean, with with work, I was working with it, with people from all around the world, and uh, so I felt connected, you know, with a kind of global community. But then you'd walk out the door. That's you know, in the evening, and it's brilliant living in a small tiny town you know get in the car 10 minutes and i'm back home you know uh, no long commute or anything like that and in just one of the most beautiful parts of the whole world i'm so lucky that the diesel happened to be in this part of italy because it is just a glorious part of, of northern italy it's at the foothills of the dolomite mountains it's like an hour from the beach in venice 
another, you know, an, an hour or two from Milan. So very well positioned, but just stunning. So I love switching off, you know, after all of this kind of like chaotic social media, digital world, it's nice to just turn, turn off and relax. And a couple of years ago, I, I took up running. My son was playing football. I think they were going to organize a parents versus the kids football match. And it, it just, I had this like pang of fear come across me. I thought, this is going to be a disaster. I haven't, you know, I've dedicated all this time to work. And I, I know I was not doing any form of exercise at all. And I thought, no, this is going to be just one humiliating, but also probably, you know, life threatening participated in that match. So I, I just, yeah, one day I woke up and just thought, right, I better get get moving so i started running great and through doing that i got injured and so i went to the local running store and said look i need some help you know i need some guidance so i got myself a coach and connected with this community and it's brilliant it's um i'm now the president of the local uh, athletics club i don't know how the hell it happened so it's given me lots of other passions to do outside of work and for me yeah dedicated to running with this community and having fun exploring. It's a great way of exploring the locality, which I hadn't really done in 20 years. It's only been in the last five years that I've really been, you know, traveling every Sunday to run in races, go up in the mountains. And, you know, it's a great way of discovering different places and, and getting to know also people, not just through work, you know, getting to know the locals. And I love that. Uh, it's, it, I really felt like I've put my roots down and connected it's nice to to walk around the town and you know people are waving at you. You recognise people. You've, I feel like I've got that physical connection as well as uh, having all of these amazing digital relationships that we can have as well. I think the, the running is where you reconnected with me, wasn't it? Because of the listening to podcasts while you were running. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, precisely with the with COVID and things like that. You guys have put together this podcast and. Yeah, I often go out and stick the headphones on and, and it's, I find it a great way to keep up to date with what's going on and, uh, around the world just to listen to podcasts. So yeah, listening to you and also when you have your interviews with uh, Trevor and Patrick, it just, yeah, it just brought back all of those wonderful, mem mainly wonderful memories. A lot of um, uh, being, had the mickey taken out of. So yeah, you had to have a a thick skin. No one thing where I would have taken the mickey. Well, I remember being absolutely humiliated when <laughs> you took me, which was a brilliant opportunity, by the way, to judge the Daddy Awards in Scotland, which again, I came to Italy and it was a, coming to Italy and then I'm flying back immediately to go up to, uh, to Scotland to judge the Daddy Awards. First time I'd ever been up there. It was the evening. I was finishing off some emails and you know, you know, I was a little bit late coming down for dinner. I come down for dinner. And everyone, all of the other judges are there. All of these really amazing, important judges are there, all sat around the table. That I'm looking for the last space. And there, at the end of the table, is a high chair. <laughs> so the, my, my chair that Phil had given to me was a high chair. He's, he's just saying, it's because he always thinks that I'm tiny and uh, like 14 years old or something. So any chance to draw attention to my small stature and uh, uh, you didn't miss out on that that was quite funny it seems that you've always had a real passion for technical innovation and across your career you've been driving change and early adoption tell us a little bit about that 
and how what you're doing currently is there to help promote sustainability. No, I'm really excited with the project that I'm working on right now because I really believe that it's a technology that can, it will be fundamental in making the fashion industry more sustainable. In the past, we talked about digitizing so many aspects of the, the fashion business, of the communication business, you know, everything from e-commerce, revolutionizing how fashion was sold, to communicating it. All of those aspects over the years have kind of matured how they've transformed through digital. There's one last piece of the puzzle which hasn't been digitized fully yet, and that's the product itself. And that's what I'm currently working with a, a company called Certi Logo, and that's what their specialization is. They have like 16 years experience of actually digitizing products, and especially for the fashion industry. What does that mean? It's applying a digital ID to the product so that it can be recognized at an individual level, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, one product level, it can be recognized. They originally were started to allow consumers to authenticate products. So especially in the kind of fashion business and the luxury business, when people are spending a lot of money on a product, they want that reassurance that the product is authentic. You know, and in the past, maybe when you bought a, a product, for, especially from a brand store, you could trust that it was authentic. And maybe it came with a, a hologram or a little, you know, ticket, which was a, certi a certification or something of authenticity. But as people are buying more and more online, you know, there's not that reassurance that the product is, uh, is authentic. And they, they pioneered a solution which enabled the consumer to check digitally that the product was authentic. And thanks to other innovations, things like NFC tags and QR codes, means the consumer can very easily access the product, connect to the product, check its authenticity. That's kind of what they've been doing for many years. But now there's this incredible potential to use that as a, a lever to make products more sustainable. I mean, obviously, you know, a product that isn't authentic, if it's counterfeit, it shouldn't exist in the first place. By definition, it shouldn't exist then. So it can't be sustainable. So only a product which is, you know, uh, is authentic can be considered sustainable. It enables the consumer to connect to the product and learn how the product can be sustainable. So you can access any information, storytelling about the product, effectively turning the product into kind of like its own communication channel effectively. And I think it's really important when it comes to sustainability, it's a really important factor to educate the consumer on you know, new technologies, new ways, new materials, new things they might not be familiar with so that they can understand the impact of the purchase that they make. So educate them on the sustainability profile of the product, how it was made, the new technologies, the new innovations that are behind making that product more sustainable. Even more than just educating the consumer, through this technology, you can actually have a real impact on the industry, making it more sustainable by actually involving the consumer, not just telling them that the product is sustainable, but actually involving them in the process. So, you know, encouraging them to repair the product, you can connect the product, learn how to lengthen its life. Maybe you can educate them on how they can reuse the product or, you know, put it with something else to create a new look or a new outfit. And then when it comes to 
the end of life when people, instead of just throwing the products away, you know, with the connected product, it's very easy to, to then sell that product online. You could, uh, you know, press one button and push your product onto a resale platform. You know, it could be eBay or it could be, you know, any one of the many other platforms which are becoming more and more popular to sell products secondhand. You, we're helping to encourage people to give a second life to that product by making it easy for them to sell it and actually get back some of their investment in in the product itself. And there, it's very important that the consumers can demonstrate that the product that they're selling is authentic in order to create that trust with the people that they're, they're selling to. A product which can actually authenticate itself is worth you know, a, a lot more than a product which is not able to authenticate itself. And then you can also encourage people when that product has finally finished its its useful life, you can give a way for the consumer to reconnect with the product and learn how they can regenerate it, how they can return the product to the brand, for example, in exchange, maybe even for a kind of reward, uh, maybe a discount or, or access to some other you know special collections or something, an incentive for them to actually return that product and make sure that it returns back into the circular economy. So it's the brand that becomes responsible for making sure that the materials that are being used to create that product can be regenerated and turned back into new products. And so this idea of digitizing the product for me is, I think, groundbreaking for the fashion industry. And that's where I see the big challenges and the big opportunities lie for fashion is actually you know, turning the product into a communications channel and in a way which is going to change the relationship, you know, in a big way with uh, how people relate to their, relate and use their products. Brilliant. That's really good. I mean, again, you know, it's really interesting to see how that use of technology is really having an impact on people's lives. And maybe you've answered the question, but the final question we ask all of our guests is, what's one of life's complexities you'd like to see made simpler? If if I've got a bugbear, I think the one thing that's capable of turning me into that little red character from the Pixar movie, the, I don't remember what it's called, the angry character, is is my home Wi-Fi. It's, you know, one of the, I think we, you know, so used to everything working, you know, without any stress. And yet Wi-Fi for me at home is one thing that, doesn't matter how, what I do with it, it always seems to to not be working. So I think that's the one bugbear of everything. But it's a, I like the I like the question because I think in, ter- in our business, you know, it's it's rewarded and it's what we focus on is how to try and make things simpler. The most elegant design is the one which is using the least elements possible to achieve the most. So I I think it's something that I aspire to to do in my work to make things simpler in many ways but it's kind of an oxymoron it's a bit of a contradiction i think that in the reality as designers or as digital we actually make things more complex i know that i my, my mind the way my mind works is i i'm capable of making things more complex i see opportunities when with with digital i see something that probably is quite simple like the one advertising image, and I see the opportunity of we need to turn that into a thousand images so that we can be, you know, more relevant. So it's an interesting idea. This idea of taking complexity, making it simple, or maybe maybe what we're doing is taking 
simple and making it more complex. <laughs> True. So if you could sign off in Italian for us, saying something to our listeners in Italian, and then we'll say bye-bye, my friend. Grazie, è stato un piacere, veramente fantastico di rivedervi. Buona giornata, arrivederci tutti. Thank you very much, Richard. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Wonderful People podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Wonderful Creative Agency. Find out more at thewonderful.co.uk.